Wouldn't that be great if everything really was under control? I mean, is that not just a metaphor for life? I mean, sometimes our, kin- our class or our lives are like a kindergartner class. That's just out of control. And though we would like to say, oh, everything's under control. We'd love to be able to bring into order the chaos that is our lives. But for some reason, it escapes us. And what do you happen? What happens when, when like, the teacher there, Arnold, <laughs> what happens when you get into something and you get in over your head? You know that feeling like, uh-oh, I've just bitten off more in life than I can possibly chew. Uh, Mother Teresa said one time, and I'm probably going to paraphrase what she said because I'm remembering it. And she said, I know that God won't give me anything more than I can handle. And then she added, I just wish he didn't have so much faith in me. (laughs) Yeah, I sometimes, Lord, do you really have that much faith in me? You know, that movie has a happy ending. It's Hollywood, after all. He gains control of the classroom, gets the girl, arrests the bad guy, and becomes the hero. Woo-hoo. If only our lives were a Hollywood film that has a happy ending all the time. And life, though, for you and for me, probably hasn't worked out the way you had planned it or the way that you had hoped for. So the question is, how do you handle the stress? How do you handle the disappointment? In the 14th chapter... John's Gospel, that's where we're going to start this, this morning. The, the 12 disciples, actually in this case, one of them's already left, Judas. There's 11 left. They're having a conversation. These guys are incredibly stressed out. And sensing their growing anxiety, Jesus begins to explain something very important to them. And we read now in verse... 1 of chapter 14. And I would like us to do this together. Let's, let's read this aloud together. All right, it should be on your screen. It is ready, go. Do not let your hearts be troubled. Nope, that's my bad. I put the wrong thing up there. Well, you, you got the second verse. I just forgot the first. So I'll read the first one and then we'll continue. So you can pick up on verse 2. Ready? Do not let your hearts be troubled. Trust in God. Trust also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, I would have told you. I'm going there to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you to be with me, that you also may be where I am. Lord, would you come and open your word to us this morning? And would you teach us? Holy Spirit, would you... um, just, Lord, we need you. We need you to break through this morning. And so, Lord, soften our hearts. We trust you in Jesus' name. Amen. Don't let your hearts be troubled, Jesus said. Why did he need to say that to the disciples there in the upper room? Why? Because they were deeply troubled. Within hours, Jesus will be arrested and crucified. The upper room, it was a pressure cooker of emotion. Now, for just a minute, let's do this. Let's put ourselves in the sandals of the 12 disciples. All right? Here's, the, here's what's going on. Peter, 
has just denied Jesus, and he's embarrassed. Now, he hasn't just denied Jesus. Peter has been told by Jesus that he's about to deny him. And Peter is wondering what that's all about. It's disappointing. Judas is in the process of selling them all out for 30 pieces of silver. They're embarrassed because of the way they behaved during the dinner there in the upper room. Because they were arguing about who was going to be the greatest. And then Jesus sort of embarrasses them all by answering the argument by literally disrobing, coming to a loincloth and washing their feet. So that's in the back of their minds. Now they're also afraid of what's going to happen to Jesus. Coming to Jerusalem, they thought, wasn't such a smart idea. They'd even counseled him not to go, but Jesus went anyway. And they must have been afraid of what would happen to them. If Jesus gets arrested, are they going to get arrested? This is a pressure cooker of emotion and of anxiety and of intrigue. And at the very moment, think about this. Right then, at that moment, nothing bad has actually happened yet. Think about it. I mean, isn't that just the way it is, though, with fear? Because sometimes the fear is the greatest when we think something bad is about to happen. I know things get bad sometimes when bad things really do happen. That's that's not fun. But it's the thought, even though it hasn't happened. And that's what's going on here. This was a different moment for them. It was different from this perspective because for three years they had seen a different Jesus. In in fact, in, in terms of his condition, he seemed always invincible. They remembered probably the, the time when Jesus, you know, in the middle of the storm, just yells at it and it stops and it's quiet. They would remember the time when he was in Nazareth and the, the people in the village wanted to stone him, wanted to kill him. And he just gives them the slip, just, just mysteriously slips away. They probably remember the time when he was in Jerusalem and turned the tables over of the money changers and made everybody in leadership there angry, but he got away with it. He was untouchable. And now, in these moments, Jesus seems different. Though he's still courageous, his tone is a little different. He's filled with a combination of seriousness, a vulnerability, and a sadness. And despite all that Jesus himself is going through, his primary concern at that moment is not the cross. What's his primary concern? His primary concern is the troubled hearts looking at him from the other side of the table. That's what he's thinking about. By the way, this morning, I believe he is just as concerned about your heart and your situation and where you're at. The thing that you're worried about. The situation that seems to preoccupy your attention. You know that that thing when you are in the car and there's nothing going on around you and you're sitting in traffic and after you're done getting mad at the construction workers who aren't doing anything, you, you, your, your brain goes to that thing, that worry. It just kind of plays over in your head. We all have it. Now, some people believe that uh, Christians, by definition, a Christian is, is someone who is not affected by stress. Christians don't worry. They respond to life's problems with a smile. 
a laugh. <laughs> and a Bible verse. Oh, be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication. Let your requests be made known to God, and the peace of God passes all understanding. will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Amen. Is that the definition of a disciple? Is that what it means to be a Christian? I don't think so. Because I think if Jesus' disciples had troubled hearts, then maybe it's okay for you and I to have troubled hearts. Did you know that Jesus had a troubled heart? It says, in fact, three times in John's Gospel, the, the three previous chapters, 11, 12, and 13, three different times, the exact same word is used to describe Jesus being troubled. So if it's okay for the disciples, if it's okay for Jesus, by the way, it's okay for you. The question is, what do we do with a troubled heart? What do we do with a stressed out life? What do we do? And what does it mean? What does this mean for us? What are the implications? Well, it's this, that stress for us is a fact of life. Stress is a fact of life. You can't avoid it. It's going to happen, but you can overcome it. You can't avoid it, but you can overcome it. How? Jesus offers the cure. Here it is. He says, trust in God, trust also in me. Trust in God, trust also in me. i got to admit something. When I read that verse the first time, there's this little voice in my head that I heard, and it wasn't the Lord's. But have you ever heard someone come to you, maybe a Christian brother or sister or somebody, well-intended, you've got a big problem, maybe you've just told them your life story, and they say to you, well, here's what you need. Oh, great, you've got an answer for me. Chad, you just got to have faith. You just got to have faith. All right, stop that. George Michael. Sorry, that's a blast from the past. Got to have faith. I hate it when I hear that from other people, and I hate that song. It's just, oh, it just drives me crazy. And when people say to me, hey, Chad, you just got to have faith, I want to tell them, dude, you're going to need more teeth and some Tylenol. After I smack you. Because I know I need more faith. Tell me something I don't know. Huh. Jesus says, trust in God, trust also in me. He wasn't saying exactly what I was thinking he was saying. But something similar. Why did he say that? You see, the disciples were having trust issues. They got issues. You got issues? They got issues. And as Jewish men, these men had always had a measure of faith in God, especially, obviously, the God of the Bible. But now, Jesus isn't saying, hey, you got to have more faith. He's saying you got to have a new kind. A new kind. Because they would need to trust Jesus like never before. And it's not in that moment that Jesus is just is drawing a distinction between himself and God by saying, trust God, oh yeah, and then trust me. No, he's not drawing a distinction. Actually, he's drawing just the opposite. He is demonstrating his equality with God. And he's trying to get their attention. As if to say, guys, 
You need to take your faith in me to a whole new level. You do. Because in verse 9, Jesus is going to make him, uh, is going to say this. He's going to say, anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. In other words, he is saying to these men in the upper room, and I believe he's saying to us right now, that when we have a problem, when our hearts are distressed by the Holy Spirit, we have Jesus right here in this room with each one of us right now, the God of the universe, accessible, undeniably available to us as a resource for us. Is that good news or what? This is amazing news. And this is kind of new news to them. I know Jesus has been trying to tell them for three years that he was God. And they probably aren't going to get it completely until the resurrection and probably Pentecost when the Holy Spirit were to come. And the message here is this, that you need to trust me like never before, men and women. Because fear, stress and anxiety, they do weird things to people. They can take a lifelong Christian and turn you into a temporary atheist. Have you noticed? Oh my gosh. Oh, everything's falling out. The world is just coming. I, my wife will tell you, I do this. Do you? I mean, you just, it's like God just left the throne. The whole world is coming apart because of this one weird thing that's happening to me. Can anybody else identify? Come on, let me know I'm not the only knothead in the room. Thank you. You just raised your hands to make me feel better. I know. <laughs> the question is, what is it you're worried about right now? And I would encourage you to take your notes and write it down. Maybe it's one word, that one thing that you thought about during worship. Or maybe the Lord's put on your heart. And just stick it on your notes. Write it down. By the way, if you're taking notes, you can cut your note paper in half, actually, because I'm only going to go over point one today. As I was preparing my message, I realized I had two, maybe three sermons. So fortunately, I'm not going to preach them all this morning. Thank, someone say, hallelujah. <laughs> so that thing that you're worried about. Have you stopped in some way trusting God? Maybe it's been a long time. You haven't had the breakthrough that you wanted. And the question is, have you believed the lie of the enemy, which says, if God really cared about you, he would have done something by now, don't you think? When we hear things like that, you need to remember something. That's the voice of the wolf trying to separate the, separate the weak sheep from the flock. That's what that is. That's trying to get you to disconnect. And you've got to say, dude, I don't believe it. You're the devil and you're a liar. You've been that way from the beginning. I'm going to trust Jesus. I know what he said about me. I know what he's saying. And that's what Jesus is doing in that upper room. He is trying to correct their theology. He is trying to remind them of something they're going to need to know in the pressure cooker that is going to be the next several years of their lives. That separation, that's what happened to Judas. That's why he left. He's not in the room anymore because Satan had put this thing in his heart. Was disappointed probably with who Jesus seemed to turn out to be. And Jesus knows something. He knows what the disciples need. What is it? Well, what they, they don't need, they don't need 
Jesus to come necessarily and fix all their problems. But here's what they do need. They need a new perspective. They need a new perspective, and so do you. So do we this morning. We need a new perspective. We need to see things differently. And so this is the principle that we're looking at this morning, and it's this, that we overcome stress. Not when God removes our problems, but when we receive his perspective. When we receive his perspective. Think about this for just a second. When life smacks you upside the head, when you're afraid, when you're worried, you're stressed out, what is it that you would like God to say to you in those moments? I have a list. And it looks something like this. Well, because these are the things that I would like to hear, make me feel most assured, maybe makes you feel most assured. I'd like to hear from God, hey, everything's going to be okay. Nothing bad's really going to happen. Your marriage, it's going to be fine. And for some of us, you might want to hear the Lord say, hey, your, your girlfriend, your boyfriend, they're not going to break up with you. They're, in fact, they're going to ask you to marry you. Don't worry about it. Your boss won't really fire you. You won't lose the house. The, econ- the uh, bad economy, the recession isn't going to affect you. And your car won't break down like all those other cars. I think there's a demon of water pumps. <laughs> You've met the demon of water pumps. Yeah. Only <laughs> You want to hear, hey, your loved one's going to get well. You're going to get the promotion, not the pink slip. And think, those are the kind of assurances we want, right? Now, suppose you're one of the disciples in the upper room that night. What does their troubled hearts, what do they most likely want to hear from Jesus? Don't worry, you're not going to get arrested like me. Don't worry, guys. I sent someone to take care of Judas, and that whole, that whole uh, betrayal thing is going to backfire on him. Ha, joke's on Judas. Don't worry, you're going you're gonna to be able to write a bestseller <laughs> and make millions of dollars. Well, they're going to write a bestseller. We're reading it this morning. Don't worry. I'm really. Gonna, I'm not going to leave you. No, just kidding. All that stuff about my death, just a metaphor, just a parable. It wasn't just. Don't worry. Everything's going to be fine. I'm taking care of it. Not a problem. But everything isn't going to be fine. In fact, it's going to get a heck of a lot worse. Really bad. They're about to have the worst day of their life. And Jesus as well. And he makes no promises to solve their immediate problems. But he does offer them a fresh perspective. Here it is. He says, in my father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, I would have told you. I'm going there to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you to be with me that you also may be where I am. Here's the perspective that we need. We need an eternal perspective, an eternal perspective. And this is it. It's this, that in Christ, I have the hope of eternity. I have the hope of eternity in Christ. Now, if someone came to you and they were afraid for their lives and they came seeking Assuring words from you about their situation, how would you counsel them? What would you say to make them feel better? Because these disciples themselves, they're afraid for their lives. And what assurances does Jesus give them? I mean, they must have been wondering, am I next? Is it going to be me? They're going to crucify me too? 
And I'm sure they would have preferred a straight answer from Jesus. No, everything's going to be fine. You're not next. You guys are going to go live happy, healthy lives. No problem. Instead, he tells these men, men who are afraid for their lives, not to worry because I'm preparing a place for you in heaven. Great. Huh. Not probably what they were looking forward to hearing. I asked my brother once, he's a surgeon, and it kind of reminds me of this situation, because I asked my brother, I said, bro, when you're in surgery, and the patient, if things aren't going well in the surgery, and the patient starts bleeding, do you ever, do you ever worry that you're not going to be able to get the bleeding to stop? I mean, what would happen if, that, if you couldn't get the bleeding to stop? And he just shot right back and goes, oh, Chad, that's no problem. All bleeding eventually stops. Remind me to call somebody else when I need my gallbladder removed. But I think that might be the kind of feeling they got when Jesus said, Oh, no, I'm preparing a place for you in heaven. Oh. And it's almost like Jesus is saying to the disciples, Yeah, you're going to die. Don't worry. Got you covered. And he, of course, says it way more delicately than I did. But I think that's the message here. And it's the same message that we also need to hear, too. Because death for all of us is not a matter of if. It's a matter of what? When. It's a matter of when. And for young folks in the room, you think it's miles and miles and years and years and years away. And for some of us who've been living a little bit longer than you, it, it doesn't seem that far away. And so what if? Your worst fears come true. What if things get really, really bad? And what if it gets so bad that it kills you? Hear me, please. There is something so amazing, so incredible, so wonderfully prepared by the God who loves you that you cannot even imagine it right now. It's that amazing. It's that amazing. What is it? Jesus says, it's my Father's house. Of course, this is a reference to heaven. And that word heaven, it's a bit vague, don't you think? I mean, we all have these different ideas about what that means. And so, when we think Father's house, we think of a house, a big house, you know. Of course, that's the metaphor there. But consider what the prophet Isaiah said, or he wrote, uh, as he's literally quoting God. This is God speaking through the prophet Isaiah, chapter 61 and verse 1. It says, Heaven is my throne and the earth my footstool. Where is this house that you're going to build for me? Where will my resting place be? What is God saying about his house? He's saying that the universe, the entire universe is his house. That's how big his house is. And there's something special, Jesus says, about this house. He says, there are many rooms. My father's house has many rooms. What does that mean? Well, the old King James conveys a different concept, actually uses a word, says there are many mansions. And that's the word in Greek is where we get the word mansions. But it literally means that word means a, an, an abode, a place to live. This is kind of it's a general place. Um, 
But when we think in our Christian culture, there's this idea of the mansions because it came out that way in the King James. And and this, this sort of conveys a false idea that after checking in at the front desk in heaven, Peter's going to drive you on his heavenly golf cart and drive you to the exquisite mansion that's prepared for you in this exclusive eternal gated community where the Lord himself is the uh, president of the homeowners association. And with that myth in mind, some people believe that when Jesus said, I'm going to prepare a place for you, they think, oh, Jesus is the general contractor who's in charge of building my mansion. Lord, I, I want granite countertops. You know, how about a little river running through it where there's fish? Whew. Salmon, preferably, big ones, 40 pounds plus. 50? Okay. <laughs> That's not what's going on here. Though, there is some truth in here. Because he is building something, but it's not a literal mansion. It's something quite different. And as I read scripture about what it says about heaven, I'm convinced of this, that when Jesus left the earth, he did so not to prepare heaven for me, but to prepare me for heaven. And there's something about these physical bodies. There's something about these that is incompatible with the new, the new dimension of existence that we commonly refer to as heaven. We see that when Jesus rose from the dead, there was something different about his body. He literally went through walls. Of course, they recognized him, but he looked a little different. There were some unique faculties about a resurrection body. In fact, the, the New Testament says a lot about that. And so when Jesus said he's preparing a place, he means he's preparing a body for you. And that's what Paul describes in 2 Corinthians 5. He writes, I love this, it's from the message, and I think he just uncloaks the, some of the difficult language. And I just, I just want to read it because he speaks about this, the Apostle Paul does. We know that when these bodies of ours are taken down like tents and folded away, They'll be replaced by resurrection bodies. Resurrection bodies. Isn't that great? I want a six-pack. You know? Who said that? <laughs> I totally got off track here. We're reading God's Word. Back to the sermon. Um, they will be replaced by resurrection bodies in heaven. God-made, not handmade. And we'll never have to relocate our tents again. Sometimes we can hardly wait to move. And so we cry out in frustration. Compared to what's coming, living conditions around here seem like a stopover in an unfurnished shack. I love that. And we're tired of it. We've been given a glimpse of the real thing, our true home, our resurrection bodies. The Spirit of God whets our appetites by giving us a taste of what's ahead. He puts a little heaven in our hearts so that we'll never settle for less. Is that just amazing? He puts a little heaven in our hearts so that we'll never settle for less. And I believe that's exactly what he's doing in the upper room there with the disciples. They didn't need him to fix their problems. They need a little heaven in their hearts. They needed a new perspective, an eternal perspective. 
And so the question then is, how does this eternal perspective help me navigate through the stress of my life? Well, there's a threefold promise in here, and they're not in your notes on the screen, but you can write them down as they come up. And the first one we've already discussed, and it's this, that he has promised to prepare me for eternity. You see, God may not be causing your problems. God may not be causing your problems, but I can promise you this. He's using them to prepare you for eternity. 2 Corinthians 4. Actually, these are the verses that lead into the verses that we just read. Paul writes, and I'm reading from the New American Standard now. Therefore, we do not lose heart. But though our outer man is decaying, yet our inner man is being renewed day by day. For momentary light affliction is producing for us an eternal weight of glory, far beyond all comparison. I love that. When you think about the Apostle Paul, a man who'd been arrested, chained, hungry, rejected, excommunicated, How does he refer to his afflictions? He says they're light and momentary. Huh. Momentary. Have you noticed that all the trials of life, the one thing they seem to do is make life seem a whole lot longer? Remember, remember Snowmageddon just a week ago? I saw someone's Facebook said, this was the longest week of my life. <laughs> I might have been someone in here that said that. Um, but And for me, it was one of the longest weeks of my life because not only did we have snowmageddon, I was stuck in the house, I was sick. I had this nasty cold and I even, I, it's hard, I, I, I spent a whole day in bed. I, that never happens to me. That was a very long week. So glad when it was over. But Paul is saying that they're just momentary. See, Paul has, is coming and he's writing from an eternal perspective. And he's saying, look, look compared to eternity... We're going to look back and see the timeline of our life and see this little, this little blip. And it's going to be nothing. And it's hard even in the moment because the thing that you're dealing with is important to you. And it is. And it's important to God. But in the context of eternity, it's actually quite small. It's, it's important to God. That doesn't mean it's not important to God. It just means that in the, etern- in the concept of eternity, it is actually relatively small. We need to keep that in mind. Otherwise, we get despair. He said his afflictions were light, whipped, beaten, starving, friendless at, at times. Even his own Christians, uh, friends and brothers would reject him, say mean things about him. And he, he says that his afflictions, the things that he's going through, are light. Because compared to the glory that awaits in heaven, they are very light. There's just, there's no, I mean, the scales are, are out of balance. If this is our affliction, this is the weight of eternity. And it has just balanced the scales. Or not balanced the scales, it has overwhelmed the scales. There's this eternal weight of glory. And these momentary light afflictions, he says, are producing something. There's a purpose. He says it's an eternal weight of glory, which means that today's trials are preparing you for eternal glory. He's not done with you yet. He's not done with you yet. 
please understand something. That when I look around the room, I see people who've gone through all kinds of things. And there's a, on a scale of easy to hard, there's people in here who represent every way along that scale. And in the things that you're going through, please understand this. There's a, a, a false assumption sometimes that we say, well, God is doing this. You know, some of the, the daughters in the room here have, have been the victims of abuse, verbal abuse by men. Sexual, physical abuse. God didn't do that to you. A sinner did that to you. There are things in our lives where we, people will even say, well, God did that to teach you a lesson. That, only half of that statement is correct. God didn't do that. But he never wastes a hurt. He never wastes a hurt. He doesn't control the sinners around you who are affecting your life. Because, you know, we walk through life and it's like, you know, we're walking along, partnered with somebody, and uh, you might want to avoid the mud puddles and you're just kind of ticking along in life and all of a sudden they see the mud puddle and they want to splash. And guess what? Their mud gets all over you. You didn't make the mud puddle. God didn't make the mud puddle. God didn't splash it up on you. But a decision of someone else did. It's very important that we understand it. But in that moment, God is not going to waste that because He is doing something special in your life, even through the junk that people do to one another. Amen? And so we need to take that and understand that that has happened and to bring that to the Lord. And there's two other promises I just want to touch on briefly. Not only is he preparing us for something, but he says, if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you to be with me, that you may be also where I am. The disciples were so anxious. They feared for their lives. But they were anxious not just because they feared for their lives, but also, I'm convinced, that they were overwhelmed with the prospect of life without Jesus. For three years, they have seen the most incredible things. Walking on water, calming storms, feeding 5,000. The list goes on. Can you imagine what they were thinking? Wait a minute, you're leaving? Life without you? That's a bore and a chore. What do you mean? He says, I'm going to come back. I'm coming back. I'm coming back. And that's the next promise. It's that he has promised to come back for me. He's promised to come back for you. He's not abandoned you. Though people might have, he has not. Jesus would say in verse 18 of the same chapter, he said, I will not leave you as orphans. I will not leave you as orphans. You know, I know I'm convinced why some people, especially some Christians, are so miserable. You know why some Christians are so miserable? I think it's because... Well, it's not because they got problems. We all got problems. It's that they feel abandoned. I'm going to tell you just a brief story. I know a woman who, if I told you the trials that's been going on in her life, you'd say, that's kind of like Job. But this, this particular woman has the faith of Job. And if I had just told you the story 
and didn't tell you what she was like, and then you met her, you'd think she was making up all this joy, that she was just putting on an act. And you know what? I know her. She's not. Because she knows that the Lord has never abandoned her and never will. And this just keeps her lit up like a light bulb. Despite all of the pain. And sometimes just shames me to my core when I meet someone like that. And I think about how inconvenient it was today because of the traffic on the freeway. Light and momentary afflictions. I mean, come on. He's promising to come back for us. He's not abandoned you. First Thessalonians four, for the Lord himself will come back, come down from heaven with a loud command, with the voice of the archangel, with the trumpet call of God and the dead in Christ will rise first. After that, we who are still alive and are left will be caught up together with him, with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will be with the Lord forever. I love that verse. I just love the promise in there. It's just it just it lifts my soul because I know that I have a destiny. And this isn't it. I'm here now. I'm passing through. How about you? (laughs) He's promised to come back for me. And the third is this. that He's promised to take me with him. Hallelujah. Take me now. (laughs) Sometimes I think, Lord. And I've met some people who I think are so in love with this world. Even some Christians. They're so in love with this world that if Jesus came back right now, today, they'd be totally disappointed. Hey, um, Jesus, not now. I was going to get married. Uh, hey, I saved up for college. I'm going to college. Really now? I mean, I, I was going to have kids. I mean, I'm going to buy a house. I'm just about to get the big bonus. And I find that these are the same people who get the most depressed when the world lets them down. Why? Because they're under the delusion that this is their home. And it is not. It is not. We're not home yet. We're not home yet. When I was 18... I left home, my house, my family, and I went to Europe as a student. And I was in England. And I had never been out of the country. And I remember even in the first hours just getting on the plane and they had, people had different accents and I get off the plane and you know the it's just everything's different. Taxis look different. Transportation's different. The signs are different. They speak the same language. Well, sort of. <laughs> and every day was a daily reminder that I'm not home. You know, there's a reason that you can't go out to an English restaurant. You know why? Because English food stinks. Where was mom's home cooking? I defy you to go look through the yellow pages for yellow pages. Go Google it. English food. They'll have a picture of gross yellow, brownish, gray peas, you know, and saltless food. And it was just, every day was this daily reminder that I wasn't home. 
When I got off the plane, I remember it so clearly. I wanted to kiss the pavement. I was just a kid. I was so thankful to be back in my home country, my home state. I was so excited. I was home. And that feeling is going to just be a small smidge of an emotion when we compare it to how we're going to feel when Jesus says, come on, let's go. I'm taking you with me. And we're going to go, I'm home. I'm home. I can't wait for that day. Oh, you see, you can't avoid the stress of life, but you can't overcome it. And the first thing we need now is that eternal perspective. And we now always remember this. We ain't home yet. We ain't home yet. We will be someday, but we're not there yet. This morning we focused on eternity. Next week, we're going to see some of the resources because it's not just about looking forward. The Lord has things for us right now to deal with the things of life. And we're going to look at that next week. I'm going to ask Pastor Dan to come up and the team. I pray this morning that the Lord has given you guys a picture of your future. The eternity that awaits. And so now, as we take off today, it's my prayer for each one of us that you, all of us, will just begin to see the things of life with a completely new set of glasses. And know that there's a reason for the season that you're in. God knows what it is. And let's just seek His heart for it. Amen? Amen. Would you stand with us? Uh, that message was, uh, I think, just amazing, Chad. Thank you, Pastor Chad, for that message. Um, for me, it was more valuable than gold. I honestly feel that way about what has taken place this morning uh, by God's Holy Spirit. And that I wouldn't trade the past hour and 15 minutes that we've had together for anything. That's how I feel about this community, about this church, about our pastor, and about Jesus. That this time is valuable. <laughs> Thank you, Lord. That you've opened my eyes to your wonders anew. You've captured my heart with this love. Cause nothing on earth is as beautiful as you. Sing it again. You've opened my eyes. You've opened my eyes to your wonders anew. You've captured my heart with this love. Cause nothing on earth is as beautiful as you. Let's sing it again. It's you, Lord. And you've opened my eyes to your wonders anew. You've captured my heart with this love. Cause nothing on earth is as beautiful as you. Beautiful one I love. Beautiful one I adore. Beautiful one of my soul must sing. Sing my soul, my soul must sing. My soul, my soul must sing. My soul, my soul must sing. My soul, my soul, my thing, a beautiful one. Sing it again. My soul, my soul, my thing, 
Take a second, just put your hand over your heart. Lord, the perspective we need is right here. We need the, that perspective in our heart, Lord. Would you come now and just by, we just come out and reach to you by faith that you, you're touching our heart right now as we seek you and we see you. Lord, you know there is so much hurt in this room. And Lord, I am thankful that none of it has escaped your notice. And I thank you, Lord, that you are active, that you are here, that you are powerful. And Lord, next week, would you, Lord, just open up for us the resources of heaven as we begin to see how it is that you're going to bless us during the day so we can cry out to you and reach to you.